Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. It is that special time of the year known as festival season, and I am reporting from one of the major film events of the fall, the Toronto Film Festival. It runs from September 8th to the 18th, and throughout this year's festival, I will be recording podcasts on the ground with a rotating crew of Film Comment contributors and special guests covering all the highs and lows of this year's lineup. So follow along on filmcomment.com. We're nearing the end of the festival, but you know, still a lot to talk about and a lot more to see. It is very late right now. It is truly an ungodly time to record a podcast. So I'm extra grateful for the two guests I have with me today who have very kindly accepted this obscene request of mine. So will they introduce themselves, these troopers? My name is Maddie Whittle. I am a programmer at Film at Lincoln Center and the New York Film Festival and uh, an occasional contributor to Film Comment. Uh, and I'm really delighted to be here chatting with both of you. I'm Mark Ash. I am a contributor to Film Comment and various other wonderful publications. And uh, I'm very happy to be here at this special Midnight Madness recording of the Film Comment podcast, and especially happy to be here with Maddie, and who I hope I talk over less on this podcast than I do in real life. So we'll just all see how that goes. Well, I'm here to police the talking over, so don't worry about that. I don't even know what you're talking <laughs> about. I, yeah, you do. I thought we could start off by talking about a movie all three of us have seen that has gotten a lot of buzz off late, which is Laura Poitras's All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, the winner of the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. Well-deserved. Yeah. Big deal. And, you know, it's not very often that a documentary does that. It's also the centerpiece at the, docu- uh, at the New York Film Festival uh, coming up. So definitely... A movie worth digging into. So I, you both have seen it. Um, Mark, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about. I would you know, love what it's to. About. Um, this is um, you, uh, directed by Laura Poitras, which is a very interesting. For a long time, I think during the last, especially during the streaming content explosion of the last couple of decades, something that we've seen a lot is documentary filmmakers who do a lot of political work sort of taking on work for hire or to supplement their, their, the income for their production companies of like commission, commissioned biodocs about musicians and mm. artists and things like that. And so this is Laura Poitras's um, potentially pivot to the artist documentary. It's a film about, it's a documentary portrait of Nan Golden, which does in fact go through her whole life and is a very gives a very sort of standard biographical reading of her of her art her photography but that is also twinned with a very contemporary portrait of her activism against the Sackler family uh the the controlling family of Purdue Pharma uh and her her recovery from addiction to oxy uh to oxycontin and other opioids and their the various actions undertaken by her group pain to get the Sackler name off of art off of the many institutions where Nan Golden's art is in the permanent collection and the Sacklers have purchased themselves some prestige. So the movie opens with um with them with Nan Golden and the rest of the pain people uh throwing empty bottles of oxy into the moat around the Temple of Dender in the Metropolitan Museum, what was then called the Sackler Wing of the Metropolitan Mm. Museum, which the last few years has been, for some of us New Yorkers, I think a very fraught place to walk into uh, for that reason. Uh, I think it's a a really wonderful film. Uh, Nan Golden's photography means a lot to me as someone who, someone meaning she, not me, uh, to be clear, as someone who sort of, like lived the dream of running away, basically running away from home and finding your way to New York city and making, uh, and making art with your, with your friends and your community and your chosen family. And the photographs and ballad of sexual dependency are these incredible iconic memorializations and celebrations of 
people in her various bohemian and uh, precarious circles throughout the 80s. And so the idea that this is, in, in many, especially as the years went along and these and many of her friends died, it becomes very natural. Uh, and, and the various struggles that they had as people with, um, as, as queer people, as gender nonconforming people, as people with addiction issues, it becomes very clear. The, the photos become more and more of a memorial to this place mm. and time that was quite marginal and would otherwise vanish. And that becomes a very natural way of making, of connecting that to her, to her activism about uh, opioid addiction. Mm-hmm. And the Sacklers become sort of this personification of the dominant social world that, uh, that the people in her photographs were trying to in some way forge an alternative to. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, it's a very unified film. Um, and I think, and I, and I think, I just think a very beautiful one. Um, I knew a lot of these photographs before and it's, but it's just always so wonderful to, to see them and to sort of know that they're coming. And because at this point they're almost like memories. Hmm. Um, so when you see the clip from Betty Gordon's empty suitcases where Nan Golden and Vivian Dick are photographing each other and you see Vivian Dick, uh, in the frame in the, in a green dress and Nan Golden crouching to take a photograph of her, you go, oh yeah, that's going to be there now. Laura Poitras is about to cut to as she indeed does, uh, Nan Golden's photograph of Vivian in the green dress. Mm -hmm. And you just, you know, point at the screen, like in the once upon a time in Hollywood meme. And you're like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, turn it up. I love this song. So yeah, this was a really fun movie for me. This is maybe my, still maybe my highlight of the festival. Oh wow! And, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased to see it getting a Mm. lot of attention and, and praise and touching people. Mm. Maddie? Uh, I, I concur with everything that Mark so eloquently Put forward, and I I would only add that I think um, it's a film that's fascinating as a continuation of Laura Poitras's project, which is very much an interrogation of power and where power resides, and how uh, disempowered individuals can seize power and 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 uh, claim the power that is rightfully theirs. And I think that uh, this vision of an artist who has reached a point in her professional life where she can make profound statements against the institutions that really um, benefit from her work and really uh, sort of draw on the work of her and other artists like her to, uh, to do what they do. The fact that she is able to uh, come out and object to the actions of those institutions uh, is a real, and in a way that, in a way that makes an impact, in a way that resonates and and is received by her audience, uh, is it's a testament to the power inherent in being an artist, mm-hmm. and and that that any artist can aspire to. You know, the 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 uh, the idea that you can take work which is an intensely personal as the film attests to in terms mm-hmm. of by by really uh building out a, a picture of how nan golden became the artist mm-hmm. that she is and where her worldview came from and the you know the title of the film is uh i believe a a, a line from the diaries of her sister who the film takes a real interest in um, as uh, uh, in the, the story of Nan Golden's sister who mm-hmm. died very young and whose life and death had a profound impact on Nan. And the, the, the film does a beautiful job of sort of threading Nan Golden's outrage at the death of her sister into the same conversation as her activism and her right. political stances and, and sort of... It just, I, I think it's rare to see, especially in, in the documentary footage, in documentary form, uh, such a coherent image of how someone can draw on life experience to become a great artist and then take the power that comes with being a great artist and translate it into 
activism and real, you know, real efficacy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really amazing to see Laura Poitras make a film about an artist like that, because I have always really admired Laura Poitras very much as an example of someone in contemporary filmmaking who really thinks about like how the film form can be an intervention, you know, how artistic form can be a political intervention. I mean, when she talks about movies, when she talks about her work, um, it's very almost goal oriented in a way that I think a lot of filmmakers shy away from. She's a very, very politically astute and aware person. Um, and so it's it's really interesting to see her make a film about an artist who has also, you know, been deploying uh, their own art like that. And, you know, I think, Mark, what you said earlier about this Laura Poitras's pivot into the artist documentary, it's interesting because in some ways this film is very much a con- continuation of the work she, you know, mm-hmm. she's made with Julian Assange or... Um, Edward Snowden, you know, it's it's a it's a film about an activist and their activism, but then it's also sort of like the Todd Haynes Velvet Underground documentary where it is about the history of this artist and then their milieu. I mean, it really through the history of Nan Golden, it's also about downtown New York culture in the 80s, you know, a queer culture back then, uh, like feminist culture back then. You know, there's a there's a detour into the AIDS epidemic and how that ravaged uh, you know, the people Nan was around at a particular time in New York and how that then relates to the opioid crisis, which I found a, a kind of rhyme that that was very moving. And I just wanted to mention, you know, uh, I think at this time of the night, you start noticing these strange patterns. And I wanted to point out two patterns. Uh, one of them is that, you know, this movie just sort of hit me deeper uh, because I just finished reading Tova Ditlison's, uh The Copenhagen Trilogy, which is, um, you know, this autobiography of this very famous, or memoir, I, sh- I should say, not an autobiography, uh, of this, you know, famous Danish author who uh, at a particular point in her life fell in with a man who was a scientist who started giving her Demerol and then methadone and she developed this horrible opioid addiction that was, this was in the 40s and 50s in Denmark that ultimately you know took a huge toll on her life and her art and she wrote a lot of, about that too and then watching this film and then also the film Corsage mm-hmm. which we talked about on the last podcast ends with uh, you know, the protagonist, the Empress of Austria being prescribed heroin because she clearly is dealing with mental illness and suicidal thoughts. And the doctor saying it's completely harmless. It's going to calm you down. And somehow these, you know, portraits of women, these fraught women who are somehow out of time, out of place, uh, being almost co-opted by the medical and the corporate institution, which, you know, recklessly almost seemed to use them as subjects. It it just, it, it you know, I, I felt that larger picture emerged from all the beauty and the bloodshed. And what I've always found really impressive about Laura Poitras' work is, is that, you know, uh, she's very direct also. And, and what I was saying earlier about how there's sort of goal that guides her filmmaking, you know. It's very beautiful film filmmaking. Like Mark, as you were mentioning, the photographs, the films are used very beautifully. The the sound of a of a shutter is used as a transition, all of that. But you know, she's not afraid to be really plain. Like she's not afraid to make a really plain, direct documentary that gets the point across while without compromising on the beauty of the art she's working with. Um, and something about that, I think just it it just made the emotional effect so much stronger for me. The um, it's interesting, like to to sort of leap off of those connections that you were making a little bit, because yes, it is very much like uh, like the Todd Haynes Velvet Underground documentary uses underground art archivally and really blurs these lines between um, photography that was taken with like a as sort of like an an artistic purpose as a documentary mm-hmm. purpose as just like a private family purpose. Um, but also like other sort of the post-war or like post-Circian melodramas of Todd Haynes. Laura Poitras makes the point that um, the sa- that like the Sacklers before they got into Oxy uh, had been the people 
that the per, that had been the people who developed and sold Valium. Ex- yeah. Which is, of course, and that's another connection to Nan Golden's origin stories as an artist that um, that that Poitras draws because she grew up in this very sort of far from heaveny suburban milieu, and yeah. you see a lot of pictures of the ranch house, and her older sister was institutionalized and so there is this sort of 50s circian domesticity and medicalization of um of female subjectivity that is the basis of her art and that is sort of foreshadowed and that her eventual activism is foreshadowed by the resonances of valium in uh in 50s melodrama i guess you could say yeah i know uh, and and just one last thought, and then we'll move on to to another film. But another just like connection that jumped out to me. Uh, so I just saw the Fablemans, and I'm not going to talk about it right now because we are going to talk about it on the next podcast. But why, you know, that film is obviously sort of semi autobiographical film by Steven Spielberg about you know how and why he became a filmmaker. Uh, also has this suburban you know, upbringing with like an unhappy mother, you know, dynamic. But while I was watching that film, I kept thinking of these, these two other films kept coming to my mind. One of them was No Bears and the other was All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, both of which have characters or or people or, you know, whatever you want to, you know, people in them who started wielding the camera for some particular personal reason. And I won't get into the reason in Spielberg, but, you know, it comes from one place there. Um, you know, it's it, in the film, it, it's really it, it comes originally from a relationship with fear uh, and control, you know, from an experience he has as a child. And in No Bears, in the Jafar Panahi movie, there are these scenes where it's really uh, filming as a form of evidence, as a form, form of, uh, you know, it, almost like a, a substitute for an oath. And that's sort of problematized. And I was very struck that Nan Golden says in this film, she started taking pictures because she grew up around so much denial that she wanted to document things and say, no, they happened. You can't pretend it didn't happen. And again, these, I I just felt this sort of like narrative emerging out of this year's TIFF of the various reasons people make movies or make, take pictures. And, you know, um, that I found also very powerful about all the beauty and the bloodshed because then it adds this meta commentary also to why Poitras's gesture is significant, you know, why documentation is significant on personal and per- political registers. And it's not, it's not truly a TIFF film because it didn't premiere here, but this is, that's also something I feel like has been very at the forefront of the conversation with the uh, Nope this summer coming out. That's Which very does, much. Which did screen, did, did screen here. That's right. They had a special right. IMAX screen. With, the, yeah. with Jordan Peele in attendance. Yeah. Um, but it's very much part of that conversation of sort of what's so important about documenting what we experience and, and why is that such a, uh, uh, a significant political act to right. document uh, what you see. Yeah. Is there a segue here? Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> well, I actually I, have one. Go for it. Well, the next movie we were going to talk about is about um, a woman who has only one photograph of herself <gasps> as a small, as a very small child with her birth mother. And then, well, and is sort of trying to fill in the gaps around this, this enormous, this enormous uh, absence in her life that is stood in for by this single photograph. Is that a good segue? Great segue. I See, this. I was going to go, I was going to do a tenuous segue with the suburban upbringing and women acting out and go to another movie we're going to discuss. Oh. Ah. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. Maddie, you should pick. Uh, let's, let's go with the photography because I think okay. this is a... Okay. This is a <laughs> Both compelling. This is so uh, uninteresting for listeners, probably. I was playing this like euphemism game. I well, uh, if you've if you've been following along and reading and dedicatedly reading reviews out of festivals and descriptions and things like that, you might know, you might have guessed, and there's a prize if you did, <laughs> that I was talking about Davy Chul, Davy Chu's Return to Seoul, yeah, um, which briefly screened in 
can under the title All the People I'll Never Be, which is, I think, maybe a better title. But, but that's not true. It was Retour Assol. No, it was it was originally going to have a different title in English because it's a French oh. film. Davy Chu is actually is a Davy Chu is a I guess a French director. A Cambodian French director. Yes. He was um who was adopted, I believe I believe adopted early in life by mm-hmm. uh, a French family. And Return to Seoul uh, is about a a French woman whose French parents uh, adopted her from Korea when she was very young in sometime in the late 1980s or early 1990s, and follows her over the course of several trips to several trips to Seoul in which she both runs towards and away in alternate times um, a, a sort of compulsion to discover or compulsion to deny this her all of these unanswered questions about who she might be if she isn't who she is. Um, and to a certain extent, to a certain extent, it's related to the trauma of international adoption. To a certain extent, you get the, you get the, you get the sense as she, the film jumps ahead over the course of, it covers about, it covers about a decade and it jumps ahead several times over the course of the film. And you're also watching like a woman, go from being in her early 20s to being in her early 30s and blowing up her life a couple of times and moving and changing careers and drinking too much Mm -hmm. and quitting drinking and getting tattoos and changing her hair and changing her boyfriends. And so it's a really interesting, I think something that I really like about this movie, aside from the fact that I think it's just very, it's very beautifully made and like scene for scene is, is, is really engaging to watch is I think a fairly ambiguous and open-ended question of what the like there isn't a particularly schematic relationship between her origin story and her adulthood you can make these connections but she's a real but she's a real person and you get glimpses of her of her of her French life Mm -hmm. as well that you 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 only see her in Seoul, in in Seoul really or in Korea and there's more to her than that mm. and there's more to her than this story but this story is hugely important to her and I think it's a really fun movie. I I uh, just hearing hearing everything you've just said it occurs to me that this is uh, a sort of a, a rare um sort of not quite genre but but something like a genre, this sort of adult coming of age story. Mm-hmm. She's fully an adult from the start of the movie on, but the film is very much about her coming into a sense of herself that she didn't have before. And I think uh, it's, you know, it, it visits moments from her upbringing. Like there's a, there, she has a zoom call with her, with her adoptive mother uh, that's very moving and very um, sort of deft in its depiction of this relationship uh, that she has with her mother. That's you know especially sensitive perhaps because mm-hmm. she's back in Korea searching for her birth parents. Um, but what you're describing, Mark, of sort of seeing these stages that she moves through upon these uh, subsequent trips to Seoul, and and the title to that respect, the title isn't about a single return to Seoul. It is mm-hmm. about repeated returns that she makes over the course of her early adulthood. I think it just is a very beautiful charting of this young woman uh, sort of discovering how to feel about herself uh, that is very, it's very subtle in its contours, um, but just very moving ultimately. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Yeah, I, I have to say, I 
I found it just so unexpected. I don't think I'm like fully sold on the movie. I don't, I wasn't completely convinced by it, especially because the character acts out a lot. Uh, you know, as, as Mark was sort of hinting at, there are lots of little uh, gestures of rebellion. And um, I thought that the film sometimes got a bit too glibly provocative or made her a rebel in a way that wasn't fully contextualized or justified and then kind of kept looping her her antics back to this seeming trauma of adoption and not being able to connect with her birth parents which there was something a bit emotionally glib about all of that for me but despite that I have to say from scene to scene it's so unpredictable especially for a premise like this which you come into it with like some uh you know, some expectations of, of certain tropes, you know, especially with, you know, this return in the title and she's searching for her parents. And it's just a very different movie from what you would expect. It, it The shape is very unexpected where it goes, you know, the, the, the moments through in her trajectory that it touches upon are, are not what you would necessarily expect in a movie about this topic. And I, I do want to shout out one particular scene, which I think is the second scene where she, you know, she's just arrived in Seoul. The movie drops us in with very little context. She's at some motel and she makes friends with um, the receptionist there who speaks a little French. And she takes her out for drinks with a group of young people. And I don't even know how to describe the scene, but, you know, they're all around a table, they're drinking, and then she starts something that it... I, I, I felt initially it was like maybe a manic pixie affectation, but it, it's something stranger. Like she starts going around this bar dancing and talking and it it's just so completely strange and her behavior is so mystifying and so singular that that really took me. I mean, that was that was very impressive. You know, that there was this assured sense of direction, but also this almost unplaceable originality of of the scene the choreography the kind of very slippery you know emotional texture um and those sorts of moments do come up again and again where it just you don't the the movie just goes from a to b in in a way that you just don't see coming at all and you can't quite pinpoint what is happening in that moment in the character's head or narratively I have to say, I fully agree. And I think um, what what I found very uh, sort of convincing and real about exactly the effect you're describing is that it, to me, felt familiar as somebody who's, you know, I'm an early 30s woman. And I, I my 20s were emotionally chaotic, you know, whether or not uh, they looked chaotic from the outside. I, I feel like there were these eruptions of chaos at moments during my 20s. And there were moments in this film, just like you're describing, where she does sort of inexplicable things. She she just sort of lashes out in, in uh, surprising ways that to me felt very real and very familiar as somebody who experienced that very... Sp- specific sort of I don't know if it's an age age related generational I don't know uh but I I appreciated the sort of emotional honesty of of that chaos I'm thinking of other you you meant you alluded earlier to the uh to this sort of like adult coming of age film and I'm thinking now of other examples of films and uh, films in which um a woman in her twenties or early thirties sort of makes a, makes a sort of split second impulsive decision to try to blow up her life and start over. I mean, we can obviously talk, we can talk about worst person in the world. That's what I was going to say. Also, I think um, there's a couple of, there's one or two quite um, really striking moments in there's a, there's a particular moment in return to soul that I'm thinking about where um, she says to someone, something like she says to someone she's close to something like, I could erase you from my life with a snap of my fingers, which is, and, and it's also like staged in a sort of like naturalistic sort of like, you're kind of like, I, well, I'm sorry, wait, what'd you say? And she says it again. It's like, Oh, um, <laughs> okay, it, but though that is actually an example of a moment that didn't work for me. Well, 
I, it's 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 big though. It's big and it's classical and it speaks to the sort of huge swings of possibility and desire. And it reminded me a little bit of the moment in Asako One and Two, which is another sort of adult coming of age film where the main where the where the woman sort of stands up from 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 dinner and just bolts out of the restaurant with this sort of fantasy of reinvention. And I think I like the idea of the sort of and I like the time jumps in this. Um, in this film because it shows reinventions sort of happening over and over again. And it it is both this grand dramatic gesture when it happens and also just a a process of, because you do erase people from your life who you you were close to in your twenties. You do, but you don't say it out loud like that to them in the middle of a cab, right? I mean, that (laughs) felt a bit contrived to me. Like that did feel like, sort of playing up this character's erraticness and and sort of maybe, I wouldn't say badass, but this sort of hard, you know, hardness and fickleness that occasionally come up in moments in unconvincing ways for me, like throughout the film. But it is a striking moment, you know. It's a moment that makes you pay attention whether you like it or not. I mean, the movie is full of bold swings. That's... Um, and I just wanted to also mention the name of the actress, mm-hmm. Jimin Park, because I, I believe it's her first lead performance. And it's remarkable. Yeah, she's great. She's excellent. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the entire movie where we're looking at her face and her body language, it's both unreadable, but also very, very evocative. And I'm really excited to see, you know, what she, what she's going to do. Mm-hmm. It really feels like a breakout. Um, and, you know, speaking of uh, women who blow up their lives, we're going to talk about other people's children. Yes. Other people's children. I know, Maddie, you're a big fan, so you want to you wanna get into this one? Yes, I was I was pretty blown away by this film. It's uh, the new film by Rebecca Zlotowski, uh, and uh, starring the, uh, the absolutely immense talent of Virginie Evera, who actually stars in two very, very strong movies from this year's lineup. The other uh, is Alice Winokur's Paris Memories. Uh, But zeroing in on other people's children, because that was the one that that, uh, kind of of rocked me to my core a little bit. Um, It's it's in some ways a fairly straightforward uh, drama, sort of a romantic drama uh, about this woman who's um, around 40 uh, and she enters into a a really lovely relationship uh, with a single father who's got a very young daughter. And the film sort of charts her relationship both with this man who uh, she has a very, very tender, warm, uh, frankly moving to watch unfold relationship and simultaneously her relationship with his his young daughter who is just an absolutely charming couldn't possibly be more adorable little actress mm-hmm. um and she grows very close to this child and at the same time she is learning that her own fertility might be uh declining with her age and and her how does she learn this maddie Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Mark, because <laughs> one of the true delights of this film, which my entire theater responded to with perfect graciousness, was uh, that her gynecologist is played by the one and only Frederick Wiseman. Uh, <gasps> you are kidding me. No, no. Why did no one tell me that Frederick Wiseman he, has a role in this movie? He is, and it's a pivotal role. I mean, he's he's... It, I believe it sounds like. Does I, he do a lot of acting? Has he been? Does in he do a lot movie? of gynecology? <laughs> <laughs> he, I would watch uh, Frederick Wiseman's OBGYN clinic. <laughs> like, but has he been in movies? I don't know, but he speaks beautiful French. Okay, uh, and uh, it was yes, yeah, <laughs> and it, it was just very, very. Uh, Surprising and moving, seeing him in this role. He sh- he crops up a few times in the movie. Uh, the, there's an implication that he was also her mother's gynecologist, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, f- fascinating in its own right. Man, I want Frederick Wiseman to be my guy. I know. <laughs> well, coming out of this film, like 
Man, if I, yeah, I, 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 I was fully, fully delighted by those moments. Uh, and those are, they're consistent with the film. I mean, it's, it, 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 in a lesser movie, I think that that could feel jarring and out of place and, and contrived, mm. but it feels very natural and organic in, in this film because it's just, um, I, it's just a, it's a naturalistic film in the sense that uh, every sort of ebb and flow of this character's life and relationships are by turns surprising, but also uh, sort of well thought out, I think. And it's a very, it's a very thorough and sensitive psychological portrayal of a woman who has to navigate her own um, feelings about motherhood and about her own potential for motherhood with a very close relationship with a child who's not her own, mm. who's, who's other people's child. And, and it's, uh, you know, obviously it comes into play in, in the sort of course of her romantic relationship and the, the fate of these three people as a potential family unit. Uh, and it plays out in a way that I think, again, is very emotionally honest. Mm. In interestingly, the film end the film has basically the same ending as the worst person in the world. I don't want to spoil anything. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that it ends with uh, the same the same uh, musical cue, literally Ooh. that yeah. the worst person in the world ends with, uh, and and in a way that uh, is does not feel. Uh, it, it it feels that it, it cements the fact that these two films I think are really spiritual sisters. Mm. Hmm. There's um there's a wonderful bit in um, Rebecca Mead's book My Life in Middlemarch where she says um, something like, "For a long time, I was um, I was afraid of dating men who had children because I was afraid that I wouldn't." be able to love their children but then I dated somebody who had kids and um I was terrified that we would break up because then I wouldn't get to be their mom anymore mm. right the problem and is that you the, will love the child too you, much that you will yeah and mm. it, it's not yeah and I think that that's just a really resonant and rich mm. premise for for a film like this um I think that there are I think that moment to it's moment. It's interesting because yeah. I feel like um, I haven't seen this film, but I think that there are more movies about relationships between adoptive fathers or adoptive fathers or father figures, you know, substitute proxy fathers, whatever you want to call them and other people's children, but not, as, I can't think of that many where the central relationship is that between a proxy mother and other people's children, maybe because there's something. Stepmom. I, I yes yeah, that, that was the that was the touchstone reference I, I came no, up with. Yeah, or was it actually a touchstone release? I think <laughs> it, it was. A, I think it was actually. It I think it been. was touchstone. Yeah, you know, yes. I think. <laughs> I think like, you know, the troubling the contours of a mother-child relationship always is somehow like threatening on screen or in narrative. So it just, yeah, this seems like an interesting sort of entry in that. Slim canon, I think, yes. at least in comparison to the dad version. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I yeah. No, you should. You you were going to say something. You should keep going. No, but I, I I. It's rare, I think, that you see a film that that really uh, engages with the multidimensionality of an adult relationship, mm -hmm. where you're you are entering into a partnership with somebody who has lived as much life as you have, and they may have bonds with another human being, like a, a, a child, that are are um, incredibly intense and that you take on by signing on for this mm -hmm. partnership. And the idea that the, the, the bond that you can have or, or work to have with a stepchild is as real and rich and intense as a romantic bond and and the fact that the two uh interact with each other in very important ways and in in defining ways um is something that this movie and and all credit to both Rebecca Zlotowski and Virginia Ferra because I think it's a real uh 
it's a real joint effort on their part uh, that that pays off so spectacularly in in evoking this one woman's experience. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we should maybe close out by talking about a movie about the love of movies. I have been at TIFF for long enough <laughs> that I no longer love movies. <laughs> I love the idea of sleeping in my own bed. <laughs> um, I, I, I will never watch, as God is my witness, I'll never watch a movie again. Um, no, yeah, so I, so I was- Tomorrow morning, Mark walks to the Scotiabank Theater and lightning <laughs> befalls him. God <laughs> catches him in the act of to watching another movie at TIFF. <laughs> you know, uh, so I was perhaps not, um, so I was perhaps not in, in the right frame of mind to receive- the good news. Um, the good news of Sam Mendes' Empire of Light. Oh, you know what mood I was in? I woke up to line up for the 9 a.m. press screening of The Whale. <laughs> 20 minutes in advance and didn't get in. And so I went to Empire of Light, which was playing in the next door theater 30 minutes out later. Mm. And uh, how was that for you? Ah... Uh, <laughs> You know, it did make me question the whole enterprise of waking up early to see a movie. And <laughs> what, I mean, it's just, it. so this movie stars Olivia Colman, uh, you know, which is always a draw because she's great. And it is very much, you know, it's one of those, I don't know what to call them, but like these buttoned up sentimental British movies. Is there kind of, I wonder if there's a word for that genre, like... Well, it's not it's not like heritage cinema because it well, this is a period film, but only like yeah. four years ago. Yeah. But it is it's I, the new heritage cinema. I think I just called called them like Stephen Daldry movies, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Yeah, but th there's like a sheen to this, you know, and um, there's a glossiness to it, even when it talks about racism and mental health. There's just something very overly stately about it it's that kind of film but I'm getting ahead of myself it's Olivia Coleman works I think d does concessions at a movie theater called the Empire uh in a sort of small town in England and she is a deeply unhappy you know older woman whose boss the owner of the movie theater played by Colin Firth is always um basically calling her into his office for little sexual favors so this very kind of illicit um, a relationship where she feels very used. She doesn't have any friends or much of a life outside of the theater. Um, and so when we meet her, she's just kind of meek and shy and is going to the psychiatrist and, you know, is, is, isn't sure if the medication is working. And then in comes a new employee. His name is Stephen, played by Michael Ward. He's uh, a Michael Ward of Lover's Rock. A Michael Ward of Lover's Rock, precisely. <sighs> <laughs> what has become of <laughs> well i mean this is another film that really much like steve mcqueen's small axe films that really gets to the heart of i i'm not even gonna finish yeah, that I, no. I, 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 where are you going what that was, was a noble effort well right. i mean well I, I, mean, I was like you are not sounding sarcastic enough to pull this this off is right the now. era of um this is the era of uh of two-tone of two-tone of two-tone ska which as one of olivia coleman's younger co-workers helpfully explains mm. it's like a mix between punk and reggae the white and the black and you know lo and behold yeah, exactly. The white and the black get together. It's a so, real lover's rock. And yeah, Michael Ward comes in. This guy, Steve, he's young, he's handsome, he's full of life. He actually loves the movies, which apparently not many other people at the theater do. And this is, I mean, this movie is just so in inexplicable because they both start an affair, but there's zero chemistry between them on screen. There is no reason... To me, like, there is no apparent reason why they would be attracted to each other, you know? I mean, maybe Olivia Well, they're Coleman. both outsiders. Yeah, I mean, the movie does kind of... That'll do it. Yeah, and I'm oh, nodding. They're, I'm nodding They're both lot, outsiders, and this is the movie's point, that she is an older woman who's suffering mental illness and, you know, ostracized in her own way, and he's suffering racism in 80s Britain. And it, it's so... It's almost insulting, you know, the sort of like we are one, you know, um, you know, commonalities. And and so they get together. It 
It just makes no sense. Like, why are they fucking? It makes no sense. But they get together. Something to do. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I mean, there doesn't seem to be much to do in this town. Um, but, you know, what's frustrating? I mean, the movie takes a lot of different turns that I don't even know if they're worth going into. Yeah, you the know. stakes in this movie. <laughs> Are like the regional premiere of Hugh Hudson's Chariots of Fire. But then there's also a skinhead rally where they like break into the theater. Yeah, the skinheads are like, we hate cinema. We got yeah. We got. We got to get the Empire. Uh, <laughs> no, but it, I, and it's like the same three skinheads who hassled yeah. who hassled Stephen like and, and, on the store on the sh- on the shorefront like in Act One. Like it's like yeah, the three skinheads, the, the Margate the Margate trio. I guess yeah. I don't know. It's like yeah, with the local skinheads. Yeah, with the uh, local uh, skinheads. <laughs> and both times when the skinheads come attack, the cops come and like stop them, which seems to me a little <laughs> suspect. I mean, I don't know. It seems like. Um, you know, a bit of a fantasy. It, like, it, a fantasy it ex- of an empire of light. Ex- it, it is a fantasy <laughs> of an empire of light. You're so... Mark, you're, you're really fired I am, off at I 1 a.m. I am so sleepy. <laughs> at 1 a.m. at night, all the this, these are the, these That's are, how you get these, the good stuff. Yeah. These are night thoughts. <laughs> but basically, I just don't understand. This movie... So it's, it's about, like, middle-aged womanhood. It's about mental illness and the mental health institution in Britain. It's Seems about like this movie is. No, it, you keep saying but, it's about these things, and it's just not about no, anything. But it's also on top of all of this about the magic of cinema, which is just shoehorned into this movie. Like there is some speech by the projectionist so, about the beauty of the projector, and also about like it's so beautiful when you watch something at twenty four frames per second, it comes to life. So I have to. I have to say I have not seen this movie yeah. yet. Uh, but I was speaking with Mark at the bar about it before we recorded this podcast and mark can you just talk about toby jones as the projectionist just a little I mean, bit i like i love toby jones i think he's a wonderful actor he um he oh he's he's, he's so hushed and reverential when talking about this is 1980 1981 yeah. so celluloid is so this is not a a fet, this is tactile and mystical uh-huh. like it is now now of course if somebody says yeah we're playing stir crazy on 35 millimeter we got a print apparently it's pretty good you're like oh yeah no like i'm gonna go see i'm gonna go see that yeah. it's in 35 that's not like how it well, you, you did you wouldn't go to see something because it was in 35 in 1981 um so he's he's unloading the uh the celluloid from the van that brings it every week, that brings the prints of uh, of Stir Crazy or Private Benjamin, uh-huh. and he, he he like nods to Stephen and goes, "Precious cargo." Uh-huh. And you're like, "Is it? Is it really it's, precious it's, yeah. cargo?" Because like, there's a like the posters in the lobby are for like Sam Peckinpah's Killer Elite. That's not precious cargo. Like this is it, it's. He's, he goes up there and he calls the project, he calls the, he, he gestures to the projectors and he says, my babies. And as he says that, Stephen notices that there's, that there's just a little picture of like, uh, of like an eight-year-old child up there. And later he, later Toby Jones reveals like, oh yeah, I have a kid. And it's just like, like the idea that like, the idea that anybody who was like a projectionist in a, in a multiplex in 1981 Thought that the thought that there was something rare and precious and beautiful about celluloid. Um, also, I just have a bone to pick with how good the theater looks. It's a Sam Mendes movie shot by Roger Deakins. Everything looks perfect. Yeah. It's this beautiful Art Deco movie palace that's fully intact. The seats are perfectly red yeah. upholstered in velvet. The cur- there's a curtain. There's a forty foot wide. This is stage. what we bring you onto the podcast. There's for, copper. Mark. There's copper and brass fixings in the lobby. Everything is immaculate. It is. Um, it's. It's got two screens. It's. So, which, okay. The first actual multiplex in Britain was uh, The Point in Milton Keynes, built in, uh, erected in 1985. A lot, the, the empire was, is based on and built out of uh, the Dreamland, which is on, in Margate, on, the, on Marine Terrace in Margate. I looked up the Cinema Treasures uh, web listing for, for the Dreamland before coming on this podcast. It is... It was, you know, built in the 30s as a beautiful 2,000-seat Art Deco movie palace and with, like, with the balcony and the stalls. And by the time this movie takes place in 1980, the Dreamland, the 
uh, had been twinned because they had turned the balcony into two separate theaters and they had turned the uh, the stalls of the auditorium into a bingo hall. So that's what going to the movies in the early days of Thatcher's <laughs> Britain in Margate actually was like. And this is and this is a movie in which like Olivia Coleman sits down in the theater and like finally sits down in the theater in the emotional climax of the movie and there's just this projector beam going behind her like the divine light of God <laughs> and it it's like <sighs> figures traced in light you know yeah, I mean, the, she's a figure traced in light why did this movie have to be set in the 80s like it's such a well I, it's because that's when racism was yeah I know that, that is that just seems like the only explanation but then all these other details don't really coalesce, you know. It just, it's such a forced mishmash of things somehow woven into a really aspirational, like, love letter to cinema. But cinema has no actual relevance to the plot or themes of the movie. I don't know. It's just kind of really indulgent and very disappointing and... uh I think we we will leave it at that. I don't know. <laughs> Feels like a, a a sorry last word, but I was just so frustrated. I woken up, lined up for the whale, and then not gotten in, and then I went into this. And the whale, the whale was not good either. I have heard, and I didn't. You know, uh, I, I didn't see it, so I have nothing to say about it. But we'll we'll talk about the whale more uh, more on the next episode. But yeah, it, I think this uh, the pickings were slim. That morning, clearly. That's right. That's right. Um, I think, so I've kept you guys so much longer than I said. I said, we're going to keep this short. We're going to keep this short. We are almost at an hour. Hell so, yeah. <laughs> so any strong. last words before we wrap up? I love cinema. <laughs> Movies to me are actually precious cargo. I think <laughs> that celluloid is a, is, a, is a beautiful texture. And every time... I sit underneath that beam. I think about my life, my hopes, and my dreams. And and I think and and being here at the Toronto Film Festival has really no. I no. I I, I can't possibly. Okay, my last get, word get is I off. hate racism. Oh yeah, no, that's yeah. It's, it's, that's it's, a good one. Yeah, it's terrible, Thank you. terrible, that's, that's, yeah. famously terrible. Yeah, that's a mic drop moment. Exactly. We I'm can't. It's a, now we shall. It's a, it's a glass. It's a glass table at the end. Don't actually drop your mics, but <laughs> metaphorically, mic dropped. Um, thank you, both of you. Again, so so grateful uh, for you to you not only for doing this at this time, but also bringing such great insights and amusements to the podcast. And I wish you luck on the rest of your tiffing, and hope to see you again on the podcast soon. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to talk about cinema with you both. <laughs> Thank you so much. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Eingy. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 